What exactly does a pastor do? Or what might a congregation rightly expect of their pastor? I came across this the, this past week, called the perfect pastor. The perfect pastor is 27 years old with 30 years of ministry experience. <laughs> he preaches 20-minute sermons where everyone is convicted and no one is offended. He's a seminary graduate and only uses one and two syllable words. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humor that keeps him seriously dedicated to his church. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and he spends most of his time with senior citizens. He is talented, gifted, scholarly, practical, popular, compassionate, understanding, patient, level-headed, dependable, loving, caring, neat, organized, cheerful, and above all, humble. <laughs> the list goes on and on and it gets sillier, but let me just skip to the end. If your pastor does not measure up, simply send this notice to six other churches that are tired of their pastor too. Then bundle up your pastor and send him to the church at the top of the list. If everyone cooperates in one week, you will receive 1,643 pastors. One of them should be perfect. Have faith in this letter. One church broke the chain and got its old pastor back in less than three months. <laughs> That's not a very good joke, but uh, what does a pastor do? Or most importantly, I guess because this is something that's easy to have an opinion about, what is the pastor's role according to the word of God? Our passage from 2 Timothy this morning gives us some of the answers as the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy about what it looks like to be a worker approved by God. Our Father, as we come to your word, we do so humbly. We are grateful for it. That you love us and you have given us your word, your revelation, so that we might know you. And that we might know a little bit about ourselves and our need to be saved. We thank you, Father, for your graciousness to us in your word and pray that as we open it and plumb its depths this morning, that the message you want us to receive will indeed be received. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 2, verse 14, our text begins this way. Remind them of these things. Remind them of these things. A pastor reminds his people. The word literally means causes one to remember. And Paul, you might recall, started this letter modeling the personal and the pastoral practice of remembering. He says to Timothy, I remember your tears. I am reminded of your sincere faith. I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God within you. A pastor reminds his people. You see, Christians do not gather to worship every week to hear something new. As much as we come to hear something old, something timeless, something unchanging, something exhilarating, the gospel, good news, read, sung, prayed, preached, and acted out. Pastors teach and 
prayerfully we will help you see or understand things you never saw before or never understood before and in this way yes worship can introduce something new and it's a pastor's job to bring something new at the same time it really is more often a pastor's job to bring to mind what is already known what has already been learned that we accentuate what is essential and must be remembered so that you can be equipped and so that you can be strengthened for the race that is before you. On the occasion of the commissioning of a New Testament translation that his father had just completed, Leif Peterson, son of pastor and author Eugene Peterson, wrote a poem. His premise in writing was that for his whole life, my dad only had one sermon, one message. So this poem, I'm going to read a portion of it to you. It might sound a little bit critical, but it's not. If you know Eugene Peterson and you know his sense of humor, you're going to understand this apple did not fall far from the tree. And Leif Peterson wraps up his poem with these words. It's written to his dad, about his dad. I alone know your secret. I alone know what you've been doing. How you fooled them all. Taking something so simple. Something a child could understand and making it into a career, a vocation, an empire. I know, because for 50 years you've been telling me the secret. For 50 years you've stealed into my room at night and whispered softly to my sleeping head. It's the same message over and over, and you don't vary it one bit. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming for you. He's relentless. A pastor reminds his people of all a pastor does. This is key. He reminds them not really to set their clocks back or change the batteries in their smoke detectors or check the expiration date on your bottles of salad dressing, although you should do that. <laughs> the pastor reminds his people of the grand themes of Scripture. The pastor who does his job holds up the remarkable truths of God's word week after week and provokes you with them and hopefully challenges you to try them on for size, to see how they apply. Remind them of these things and charge them before God. Timothy and all godly pastors will charge their people. I read that word, I think of bulls charging down the street. Not that way, gonna to get to that in a minute actually. Pastor shouldn't be that kind of a brawler. But anyway, charge means to testify. It means to confirm a thing by testimony. It means to cause it to believe, to be believed. To charge is more than telling people what to do. It's persuading them why they ought to do it and persuading them, not from one's own experience, not from one's own opinion, not from one's lofty place, but from where? From the very word of God. If you're following along, chapter two, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. If you're of my generation, maybe a little bit older, or maybe weaned on the King James Version of the Bible, you might have learned a different translation of this verse. I had this verse on a placard in my bedroom when I was a kid. It's probably in the back hall of my mother's house right now. <laughs> and here it goes. Study to shew thyself approved unto God, 
a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study to shew thyself approved unto God. Uh, we know that we are not made acceptable to God by our study habits. Yet God is truly pleased when we exert ourselves for him, when we do our best in order to please him. And God is pleased when pastors handle the word of truth well. A faithful pastor rightly handles God's word. And if that pastor is ministering according to the word, then he doesn't have to be ashamed of anything. He can, like the Apostle Paul says at the beginning of this epistle, have a clear conscience. I have nothing to be ashamed of as I preach the truth. Now, that does not mean that he will always be popular. That does not mean the pastor will always be appreciated. It doesn't mean even at times that he'll always be understood. Jesus was the greatest communicator ever. And he was misunderstood. And he was tortured. And he was killed. Paul was a great preacher. He was misunderstood. Beaten, stoned, imprisoned. Eventually executed. Timothy will follow a similar fate. He told us all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And he would be sent to jail, but he can endure that fate without shame if he's been unwavering in his adherence to the word of truth. And if he can be steadfast in that, then he'll not be like those two deserters that Paul already listed, or in the camp of Hymenaeus and Philetus who were distorting doctrine and stirring people up and leading them astray, or of the sort of Jonas and Jambres who, who resisted God's truth in Moses. Timothy won't be like that. He won't be in it for himself. He won't be trying to avoid persecution. He won't shrink back from preaching what is right. Although that might have been a temptation for him, knowing his personality, knowing the environment in which he ministered, knowing that Paul was soon to die, and there goes his mentor, there goes his teacher, there goes the person who really held him accountable and gave him great deals of, of, of instruction. It might have been tempting for Timothy to compromise here and there with his preaching, to maybe stay out of the crosshairs, to stay out of the spotlight, to, to, to swerve a little to avoid persecution or unpopularity or ridicule. And that's not, that's not a temptation that only Timothy would understand. I would ask you to pray for us, pastors, please that we handle the word rightly. That we come, we come across those places in scripture you do too, I'm sure, where you read that and go, oh my. Boy, that, doesn't, that does not set well with the culture that we're in today. That is not gonna be a popular message. It's not easy sometimes to stand up and speak the truth. Pray for us, pastors, to handle the word rightly and not to shrink back and to be willing to pay the price for speaking God's word boldly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose dedication to God's word in the face of Nazism cost him his life, was right when he wrote this, to deviate from the truth for the sake of some prospect of hope of our own can never be wise, however slight the deviation may be. It's not our judgment of the situation which can show us what is wise, but only the truth of the word of God. Here alone lies the promise of God's faithfulness and help. It will always be true that the wisest course for the disciple is always to abide solely by the word of God in all simplicity. 
A pastor reminds his people. A pastor charges his church. A pastor rightly handles the word, not as a weapon either, but as an instrument of correction and reconciliation. Because chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The pastor is focused on the word of God. And by in being focused on the word of God, the faithful pastor then will not be drawn down that rabbit hole of what Paul calls irreverent babble. Because he is tasked to herald the very words of God, a pastor must be especially careful in the words he uses. He will shun useless, fruitless discussions and wrangling over words. The faithful pastor will do his best to deliver God's words of life, while those who proclaim untruths propagate what Paul equates to a spreading infection, to the tissue-destroying progression of gangrene. Even if the false teachers and imposters gain a following, and it's clear from our passage that they have and that they will, Paul says God knows who are his. God knows those who belong to him. God knows those who do his work. He will reward the steadfast servant. He will judge the self-serving and the heretic. And 2 Timothy 3.9 gives confidence to us when, when we fear that those who are doing wrong have the upper hand. Do you ever feel that way? A little bit envious about somebody who's Who's, who's doing more, got more, seems more blessed, and they're doing it wrong, or they're doing it illegally, or they're doing it immorally, or they're not telling the truth, or they're dealing in lies. Second Timothy 2.9 reminds us they will not get very far. Their folly will be plain to all. Second Timothy 3.9. This is reason enough for Timothy and for any pastor, and for that matter, any Christian, to choose a life that brings glory to God. And I want to challenge you along those lines, brothers and sisters, to choose a life that brings glory to God. That is what you are made for. That's what you are made to do. That is where you will find the greatest fulfillment in living, is choosing to live for his glory. God knows who are his. He knows who belongs to him. He wants you to be a vessel of honor, not a vessel of dishonor. He wants you to be useful to the master, ready for any and all good work. And to that end, Paul sends Timothy in two directions. In chapter 2, verse 22, he names something that a pastor should run away from and something every pastor should run to. In the realm of flee or escape at all costs, the apostle lists youthful passions. The word translated passions, King James Version, I think, says lust. You may have a translation that says desires. So it's all the same. It's a word that means strong feelings. We tend to equate that word with sexual immorality when we read lust, but it, it, it really only means strong feelings. James uses this exact same word in his writing, describing the desires that tempt us away from God tempt us to self-indulgence and, and draw us away from God. So the instruction to Timothy and every servant of God, really, is to put distance between yourself and whatever could incline you to evil, as opposed to service to God. That's what that means, to flee youthful passions. is to flee those things that are going to pull you away from your maker. So get away from those things 
And here's what a pastor is to pursue, and so are the rest of us, by the way. All those things which are uh, against which there is no law, we would call them the fruit of the Spirit. Paul lists a few. He says, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. If we're going to pursue as pastors or even just as Christians, righteousness, faith, love, and peace, that probably means we need to avoid foolish controversies and arguments. And particularly for the pastor, verse 24, he is not to be quarrelsome. And the word in the original has a range of meanings from armed combatants to those who engage in hand-to-hand fighting and those who engage not in physical war but in a war of words. However you want to read it, it's really simple. The pastor's not to be a brawler. The pastor's not to be eager to fight. Literally, spiritually in some ways, at least emotionally, not want to be the first one on scene to give someone a thumping. It's not what a pastor is to do. And qualifications for the elders in his first letter, Paul wrote to Timothy and said that overseer must not be violent but has to be gentle and not quarrelsome. Now, it is true that a good pastor can't avoid every conflict. There's a difference between having to engage in conflict and being quarrelsome. I think you would agree with that. Some conflicts have to be faced. Some things have to be confronted because if a pastor were to just avoid every conflict, then he would be irresponsible and conceivably would be allowing the wolves to come in and overtake the sheep. But it's also true at the same time that some conversations and some confrontations ought to be avoided. And it takes discernment to know when to speak into a situation, when to enter a fray, and when choosing not to do those things is a path of wisdom. But a pastor's not to be quarrelsome. Quarrels, I'm sure you've experienced this, have a way of getting out of hand. Anybody else have that? Quarrels have a way of getting out of hand. And, And Ephesians 6 is very that our battle is a spiritual battle and we do not wage war against what? Flesh and blood. And yet we often personify our conflicts and we vilify our opponents. And before we know it, we're attacking each other, biting and devouring each other, as Paul put it in Galatians. And the pastor is to avoid this. Even if he's being treated in an unkind manner, He has to do his best to show kindness. And here the shepherd of God's flock takes his cues from the great shepherd. Jesus was reviled and did not revile in return. Jesus was mistreated, but he did not mistreat anybody. And a pastor then is expected to patiently endure all sorts of ill, any manner of mistreatment, And through all that, God calls him not to be derailed, but still to attempt to teach. Verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. A pastor corrects. So there's another thing that a pastor does. A pastor corrects. This, by the way, is the application of the passage. A lot of times we listen to a sermon and we're saying, okay, what's the pastor going to say to me today that's going to impact my life? Well, here it is. When you leave today, you should know a few things that a pastor does. If if that's true, then this will have been a success. A pastor corrects, right? Verse 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. A pastor corrects his people when they're in the wrong. So, So if I ever have to correct you, and you say to me, who are you to correct me? I will say, 
I am your pastor. <laughs> this word, correcting, is also uh, translated instructing. It comes from a root word that describes the education of a child, the, the training up of a child. Pastors are supposed to correct opponents with gentleness. I want to point something out here. I think the assumption of those who, who, who are opponents, those who are opposing what the pastor is teaching, the assumption here is, or we could call it the benefit of the doubt, is ignorance, a lack of knowing better, a lack of realizing what a person is doing, instead of just getting angry with a person who, who disagrees. The pastor is to be winsome and conversational and gentle and teaching. The reason we're at odds may be that you're not quite sure of what I'm talking about or you have a different understanding than I do of the scripture. Let's talk about that. And there's a reason, at least in this instance, for the lack of awareness that the opponents are showing to Timothy, to Paul, and it's that the person is out of their senses. Which, of course, anybody that doesn't agree with you is out of their senses, right? I mean, they just come that natural, obviously. You don't see it my way. I could see it your way, but then we'd both be wrong. We don't want to... This person is out of, out of their senses, caught in the snare of the devil. So now we're back to this spiritual component of what's going on. Taken captive, Paul says, to do the will of the adversary. So I want you to think about this, beloved, in a Christian context. We have an enemy. We have an enemy. He would love to destroy us. He has a mission. It is to kill, to steal, and destroy. He's very real. How, how much delight must he get out of wreaking havoc in the assemblies of the faithful? Of blinding people and using them to do his bidding. Those people may be acting badly, and yet Paul's depiction of them calls for compassion. Those caught in that way are live trapped by Satan. So the faithful pastor works for them on their behalf, praying and pleading and teaching in gentleness and even when treated with harshness. And why? Why would a pastor do that? Or to what end? Chapter 2, verse 25, that God may perhaps... Grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape. Coming to their senses is a phrase here that could also be used, has been used in other literature uh, to indicate sobering up. Somebody coming to their senses is coming, coming to after a bad spell. The contrary and the resistance have been under the influence is what Paul is saying, but not of substances, not of alcohol or drugs, but of Satan. And gentle instruction might just be the, the way to wake them up so that they can see the truth and so that they can then escape because they are, after all, trapped. That's why the pastor has to be gentle and not quarrelsome and why he has to pursue and why he has to have conversations with people who oppose him and try to win them so that they can come to the truth, so that they can escape. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you want those who oppose the truth of God and the work of God in this world to escape the devil's snare?
Think about that before you answer it. Do you really want those who have set themselves up against God and against you and what you believe and what you hold dear, do you want them to escape? Do you want them to come to a knowledge of the truth? Or do you have more of that spirit of James and John when the Samaritans forbade them and Jesus from traveling through their land? Remember that? Luke tells us about that. The disciples... The disciples are sort of not get, given entry through Samaria. Interesting, isn't it, that Jesus is forbade to walk through the world that he created. But anyway, that's another sermon. Luke 9:54. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Yes! <laughs> tell me no. Get in my way. Do you want that for your enemies? Because the Samaritans were setting themselves up as opponents. And what does Jesus say? You don't know what spirit you're, you're of. Of course not. Aren't you grateful, Christian, that God doesn't immediately remove or destroy those who set themselves up in opposition to him? Haven't there been times in your life when you were in opposition to God? And that God graciously bore with you. And through his spirit pleaded with you. Aren't you glad that our God is not a cancel culture God? That he just doesn't get offended and write you off? Or anybody for that matter. Because the scripture says that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if he is that way, ought we to be that way? Of course, we shouldn't be willing that any should perish either, but that all should come to repentance. Pastors, correct their people. They're supposed to correct their people. It's part of their job. What do they use to correct their people? The word of God. Again, 2 Timothy 3.16, useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now here again is that, uh, that, that idea of correction. Only this time, it's interesting, it's a different Greek word. So the first one had that connotation of instructing and training up. This is from a, a root with a connotation of straightening up. Anybody ever tell that to you? Why don't you just straighten up? Well, the way that it had been spoken to me a few times in my life, it didn't seem as endearing as Paul means it here. Because this is actually not a harsh term. It is a word that in the original implies healing. It implies transforming. It is used in other Hellenistic writing in reference to the setting of a broken limb, bringing healing and stability to life. That's what the Word of God does. It brings healing and stability to life. It sets things right. The pastor's job is to bring the Word that sets things that are broken in their right place. And that's what the Word of God is intended to do. And it is, is, in fact, what the Word of God does if we will follow the Word of God. And this is what a faithful pastor must do. This is what a, a, every biblical counselor must gently employ the Word, the healing Word of God. And as we come to chapter 3, you may have noticed a long, rather discouraging list of how things are going to be in the last days. Not a lot of hope there, not a lot of optimism. There's going to be, the, the last days will be difficult, some translations say, which is an understatement. They will be fierce. They, they will be fearsome days. 
And if you have been part of this church for a while, I don't know how long ago it was, quite a while now, but we did a whole series on 2 Timothy 3, this part of it, called Swimming Upstream. So I'm not going to take time this morning to parse all these words. We don't need to do that. We need to get the big picture here, and this is what Paul is getting at. This is what we want in our heads, is that the times in the, in the last days are going to be tough for believers, and they're going to be tough for the shepherds who are trying to shepherd them. In other words, we should have some reasonable expectations. We look around society, and, and, and we see some changes, some appalling changes in some ways, that we see a... Uh, a, a country that seems to be running headlong to godlessness, and that could be a surprise to some of us. But I want to assure you that God is not taken unaware. Okay, God is not surprised. God, in fact, has told us that these days are going to come. And so, knowing that, and in light of that, what are we supposed to do with it? Should we, should we wring our hands? Should we scream at the darkness? Should we buy more ammunition? Should we move to Iceland? The trajectory in the last days is that evil people and imposters will go from bad to worst, deceiving and being deceived. And so in light of this, Paul directs Timothy and the Spirit directs us. But as for you, after that long list of this is how it's going to be, and it's not going to be good, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Really, Paul? I mean, that's a lot of stuff there. This is your advice? Absolutely. What do I do when people are lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of self? Continue in what you've learned. What do I do when people are rampantly disobedient to children? Continue in what you've learned. What do I do? And you can take every single one of those. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Stand firm, in other words. Hold the fort. Stay the course. Don't quit. Don't give up. And so here we have it again, once more, the persistent melody of the letter of 2 Timothy. There's a lot of information there in four chapters. It goes in a lot of different directions, but really this is a one-note song, or more like a drumbeat, actually, if you want to stick with the music theme. This is what Paul is pounding over, 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 faithful endurance. Faithful endurance. Whatever comes your way, Whatever challenges you meet, whatever obstacles are thrown in your path, whatever threats come to you or great disappointments you must endure, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Todd Wilson, commenting on this passage, writes, There's an old adage that goes something like this. There are a million ways to fall down, but only one way to stand up straight. When it comes to the life of ministry, the Apostle Paul would likely say the same. An approved worker is Paul's vision for those who follow in Christ's footsteps. But it isn't an easy calling. There are challenges innumerable and temptations everywhere. Hence, Paul's simple charge to Timothy. Do your best to present yourself 
to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed.